Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, my name is Michael LeChevalier. I'm Associate Director here at the Institute. Um, and it's a pleasure to have you as we come to these final lectures of our series on reason and beauty in the Renaissance. Um, before beginning, I also just want to thank our co-organizers of this series, the American Cusanos Society, a group that is dedicated to exploring the work of um, Nicholas of Cusa, and all of our speakers are um, engaged with this society. So you can find out more at their website. Um, and you can also, um, I also want to thank our co-sponsors of today's event who have helped spread word about it, the Beatrice Institute, Calvert House, the Genealogies of Modernity Project, the Harvard Catholic Center, the Nova Forum for Catholic Thought, and the St. Paul's Catholic Center. Um, you too can help support our work, um, first by spreading word about it. Uh, you can share our emails, you can share our tweets, you can like uh, the YouTube video if you're joining us from there. Um, all of these help to extend uh, word about these events. Um, you can also support us financially by donating today at www.lumenchristi.org donate. I'll otherwise now hand it over to Rob Porval, who will be moderating today's event to also introduce our speaker. Thank you again. Thank you, Michael, uh, and welcome all to this eighth uh, in, our, in our series, uh, Reason and Beauty in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. This series has been a follow-up of a previous series on the Middle Ages, picking up with Dante Ficino and the Humanists. It has been highlighting ways that the projects of reason have interlocked and fed aesthetic pursuits and visions of the beautiful in Christian thought and culture in the Renaissance period. We are very pleased to present this as a collaboration with the American Cusana Society and our co-sponsors. You can find previous presentations on YouTube. Upcoming presentations feature culminating events on the development and reception of some of our previous topics, including next week, continuing in England with Professor Kirby, speaking on the Neoplatonic sources of Anglican foundational theologian, Richard Hooker, which is back at our normal time, 7 p.m. Central, and afterwards, Professor Peter Casarella will conclude the series with a presentation on the passage to, into modernity. I'd now like to welcome Professor Douglas Headley. Professor Headley comes to us today from the University of Cambridge, where he is a fellow of Clare College, the director of the Cambridge Study for the Study of Platonism, and professor of philosophy of religion in the Divinity Faculty. Professor Headley teaches and speaks on historical, philosophical, and religious topics of great variety from Plotinus to C.S. Lewis, and has held many distinguished visiting professorships around the world. He has published widely on the Cambridge Platonists, including last year's book, Revisioning Cambridge Platonism, Sources and Legacy, and leads the online Cambridge Platonism source book, which we shall hear about in the resources uh, for today, following up today's presentation. We are very pleased to welcome Professor Douglas Headley to prevent, present for us today. Thank you for the very kind invitation. So, um, I'm not going to be discussing uh, the, or the, the, the concept of reason and beauty in the Cambridge Platonists in a particularly detailed way. So I'm taking that uh, title as fairly generic. And of course, there are all kinds of problems uh, in giving definitions of reason, um, beauty. Uh, indeed, there's a lot of problems in giving uh, a good account of what on earth Platonism might be. Um, it's often been a source of vexation, whether among admirers or critics of the Athenian sage and his followers from Meister Eckhart's 
veneration of the great priest uh, Plato, Plato de Grosse Pfaffe, or Grosse Pfaff, to Thomas Jefferson's ridicule of Plato's, I quote, whimsies, puerilities, and unintelligible jargon. Was Plato a skeptic or an ardent mystic, a spirited advocate of human reason or prophet of the totalitarian state, a dialectician whose real thought is hidden in the unwritten doctrines of the academy, or the consummate artist presenting philosophy as a dialogue, a protean and radically self-critical thinker, or the architect of a complex and harmonious system presented in various forms. So contemporary intellectual historians are increasingly inclined to revert to inverted commas, even when referring to the most eager and unrepentant Platonists, and the Cambridge Platonists are a case in point. Now, I'm not going to discuss the uh, debates about this, although there is uh, a controversy at the moment as to whether um, they constitute a school or not. Um, but I will simply state boldly that they are the British successors to the Eckhart School. Henry Moore, while describing his own Neoplatonic studies, says, but amongst all the writings of this kind, there was none to speak the truth so pierced and affected me as that golden little book with which Luther is also said to have been wonderfully taken the Theologia Germanica. Uh, furthermore, um, Henry Moore recommended this work to his heroine pupil, um, uh, Lady Conway, as a book that would give more ease than any physics. Notwithstanding scholarly caution and the legitimate demands of definitional rigor, um, it's clear that um, I think we can talk about these figures as Platonists, uh, when a thinker like Moore freely admits to his dependence upon, quote, the Platonic writers, Marsilius Ficinus, Plotinus, Mercurius Trismegistus, and the mystical divines. Now, nor was Henry Moore alone in this. Uh, the emergence of this school of Platonists in Cambridge generated an eloquent and learned, and to some extent sympathetic, riposte in Samuel Parker's free and impartial censure of the Platonic philosophy of 1666. And this is a text that I will come to uh, further down uh, for, uh, uh, later in my talk. So who are the Cambridge uh, Platonists? Um, well, uh, here I've got uh, some pictures from the magnificent chapel of Emmanuel College uh, with Benjamin Whitchcote, uh, largely regarded as the founder of the school and alongside another great Emmanuel figure, uh, Peter Sterry. Ah, no, I pressed to, I was rather too hasty there. So, um, The Cambridge Platonists stand at a turning point, perhaps the turning point um, uh, of English religious life. That's a quote from Aaron Lichtenstein's Henry Moore. Um, 
Now, many of their arguments, ideas and problems are still very much the focus of issues in the philosophy of religion and theology, especially questions of atheism, the nature of religion, uh, nature and the ecological question, uh, tolerance and politics, and indeed the foundations of ethics. So I would say basically that the Cambridge Platonists are the first modern Christian Platonists. In a way, they are in this tradition that one can associate with Meister Eckhart and uh, Nicholas of Cusa, so the medieval uh, mystical tradition, uh, uh, and of course the late antique Christian Platonic tradition. But although they are, are dependent on that uh, tradition, at the same time they are, one might say, modern philosophers. They accept the Copernican Galilean new science, and in fact, they are enthusiasts for Descartes. So you might say that these are, in a way, intellectually Janus figures. Now, on the one hand, they're drawing on a tradition of what one might call Alexandrian Christian Platonism. On the other hand, they are uh, deeply shaped by modern science and want to attack, in particular, Thomas Hobbes and uh, Spinoza, uh, in, uh, uh, and to some extent Descartes, though in a, though in a more moderate way, uh, uh, in order to show that the Christian theology is entirely compatible with uh, the new science properly understood. Now, I've got a quotation here, rather long quotation, but I'll read you just a little bit of it from a, a rather remarkable figure, fellow of the Royal Society, uh, Joseph Glanville, um, an Oxford man, so, uh, but a, a close colleague of the Cambridge figures. And he says, um, thank you. So these divines of whom I've undertaken to say something went through the usual course of studies in the university with much applause and success, but did not think themselves perfect as soon as they were acquainted with knowledge contained in systems. No, they passed from those institutions to converse with the most ancient and original uh, authors in all sorts of uh, profitable learning. So this is as it were the uh, humanistic side. They're drawing on uh, the great um, Christian thinkers of antiquity and, of course, pagan Greek thought. So, um, and it says here that they acquainted themselves with Aristotle, his great scholar, the great scholar, and his original writings. Um, so they, it's this uh, breadth of learning that uh, Glanville is extolling. Uh, yet, um, not with yet notwithstanding this conversation with those sages, they were not so pedantically and superstitiously fond of antiquity as to fit down there in contempt of all later helps and advancements. So this is the point. So they are uh, scholars of Christian antiquity, um, but they are also uh, trying to make this tradition, this rich tradition of thought relevant for their own age. So there's a way they, they are, they are, I would say, models of um, a certain kind of philosophy of religion. So they were sensible that 
that knowledge was still imperfect and capable of further growth. And therefore they looked forward into the moderns or so who about their time had employed themselves in discovering the defects of the ancients and in reviving some of their neglected doctrines, I mean, most notably atomism as it happens and advancing them by new thoughts and conceptions. They read and considered all sorts of late improvements in anatomy, mathematics, natural history and mechanics and acquainted themselves with the in experimental philosophy of Solomon's house and the other promoters of it. So you can see the reference to Bacon as well. So not only are they engaging with Descartes, but also uh, very much in this Baconian mode. So the next slide, please. Um, so here we have uh, two of their favorite writers. Uh, now it's quite extraordinary in a way here that we have these images of uh, Origen and uh, John Scott Eriogena. You can see how here, the, these are 19th century images, of, of course, uh, but they are um, there in Emmanuel College, the, uh, as it were, the original home of the Cambridge Platonists in many respects. Um, and this is an indication of the great esteem with which both Origen and uh, Eriogena, John Scott Eriogena, the ninth century um, Irish Neoplatonist in the court of uh, Charles the Bald, were held by the Cambridge Platonists. And in fact, both Origen's Contra Celsum and uh, Eriogena's Perifusion were edited in Cambridge at this time. So next slide, please. Um, now, what, but nevertheless, this is not just, a, a, say, a drawing on ancient wisdom, but it has a, a quite specific uh, philosophical agenda. Uh, and Cudworth puts this agenda quite straightforwardly in his uh, modestly entitled True Intellectual System of the Universe. First, for making a perfect incorporeal intellect to be the head of all. And secondly, for resolving that nature as an instrument of this intellect does not merely act according to the necessity of material motions, but for ends and purposes, though unknown to itself. Thirdly, for maintaining the naturality of morality. And lastly, for asserting the top F hemin, or liberty from necessity. So there you've got the three major points of uh, a theistic philosophy as Cudworth envisages it. First, the establishment of a mind senior to nature, so a transcendent uh, intellect, the divine mind. Secondly, that nature uh, reflects, uh, albeit imperfectly, this transcendent source. And thirdly, that uh, morality is based on genuine freedom. So next slide, please. Um, now, this, as I say, is put in the context of what they regard as the uh, inadequate construals of the new science. Um, and uh, that is primarily uh, aimed against Hobbes, um, also the voluntarism and uh, mechanistic conception of nature that one finds in Descartes. 
but also Spinoza. So interestingly, we have one of the earliest critiques of uh, uh, Spinoza in the writings of uh, Moore and also in, in Cudworth. But here it is a quote from Moore. Uh, it is enough for me here as elsewhere to have cut the sinews of the Spinozan and Hobbesian cause. So notice the way that uh, Hobbesian and Spinozistic determinism are put together as a single target. Um, next uh, slide, please. However, as I say, this is done philosophically. This is not a, um, a critique from a perspective of what one might call theological positivism, but uh, with an insistence upon the rightful role in philosophy to defend uh, religious belief. Philosophy, Kudwa says, is not a matter of faith, but reason. Men ought not to affect, as I conceive, to derive its pedigree from revelation, and by that very pretense seek to impose it tyrannically upon the minds of men, which God hath here purposely left free to the use of their own faculties, that so finding out truth by them, they might enjoy that pleasure and satisfaction which arises from thence. So the argument here from Cudworth is that since God has given us reason, then we ought to uh, use it. Next uh, slide, please. Now, um, the uh, great uh, contemporary uh, or, or relatively contemporary Platonist, uh, John Finley, um, once wrote that the basic strength of Platonism lies in its appeal to our imagination, our understanding, and our sense of values. And I think um, that's a very uh, telling quotation. The next um, slide, please. Um, and Finley is a figure who is sympathetic to the interpretation of Plato that we find among the Cambridge Platonists, I basically a Neoplatonic framework. And so you can here see uh, Finley say, uh, Plotinus and Proclus understood Plato very deeply, far more deeply, in fact, than those who erect their own incapacity for system and their horror of mysticism and metaphysics into philosophical uh, virtues. So, um, and this, in fact, is often a problem with the interpretation of the Cambridge Platonists, is that they are sometimes viewed as illegitimate Platonists uh, because of their, uh, broadly speaking, neoplatonic uh, perspective. But that, of course, in a sense, just begs the question. Uh, uh, Finley makes it clear that uh, that perspective on Plato is one that uh, can still be uh, defended uh, it, it, even in the contemporary uh, context. So it's certainly not a reason for us to uh, dismiss the Cambridge Platonists. Uh, next slide, please. Um, now, uh, one of the points that uh, Finley uh, points to is the 
sense of value, the sense of, uh, of, of beauty that is there among the Cambridge Platonists along with their reverence for, for reason. And this is a dimension of the Cambridge Platonists that is, I think, uh, underestimated the impact that they had upon the English Romantics, um, uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, and also in North America on, on Emerson, um, and even uh, indirectly on environmentalists like John Muir. And I think you can get a sense of this uh, aesthetics of nature in, in a, this passage from Cudworth, from the True Intellectual System. This is the, from the 1678 uh, edition where Cudworth writes, and nature itself plainly intimates to us that there is some such absolutely perfect being, which though not inconceivable, yet is incomprehensible to our finite understandings by certain passions, which it hath implanted in us that otherwise would want an object to display themselves upon, namely those of devout veneration, adoration, and admiration, together with a kind of ecstasy and pleasing horror. Now notice that language of the ecstasy and pleasing horror. Um, it's almost a sort of proto-romantic dimension to Cudworth's account of nature which we find reinforced in the following passage, which in the silent language of nature seems to speak thus much to us, that there is some object in the world much bigger and vaster than our own minds and thoughts, that it is the very same to them that the ocean is to narrow vessels, so that when they have taken into themselves as much as they can thereof by contemplation and filled up all their capacity, there is still an immensity of it left without, which cannot enter in for want of room to receive it, and therefore must be apprehended after some other strange and mysterious manner, viz. by their being, as it were, plunged into it and swallowed up or lost in it. So again, I think what's striking there is this sense of what, what uh, literary critics refer to as the, the romantic sublime. Next, uh, um, and then here we've got uh, uh, Coleridge who actually studied um, Cudworth. So he, he knew the, the, the Cambridge Platonists. Uh, this is a passage from his Aeolian Harp. Uh, and what if all of animated nature be but organic harps diversely framed that tremble into thought as earthen sweeps plastic and vast one intellectual breeze at once the soul of each and God of all. How often uh, literary critics, when they look at that, say, well, this is sort of romantic pantheism, but in fact, the language is clearly that of Cudworth. So it's the sense of nature as uh, imaging, as, a, as an imperfect image of the transcendent divine. And, and that, of course, language of plastic nature plastic derived from the Greek platane to form or to shape. It's, the, uh, it's a concept that is derived from Cudworth. So next slide, please. Um, now, a figure who, um, a more modern figure, who uh, 
who's, uh, I think, very much in this uh, tradition, going back to the Cambridge Platonists uh, and uh, via the Romantics, is Owen Barfield. Now, Barfield, in his uh, quite remarkable work of 1928, uh, Poetic Diction, um, makes the following observation about the distinction between Platonism to sampler and Neoplatonism. Um, he says there's no better characterization of the distinction between Platonism to sampler and Neoplatonism than what was made um, by whoever defined the latter as Platonism plus the concept of genius. At all events, it seemed to me in this sense that the stream of thought to which I referred may properly be termed Neoplatonic, Plotinus, Plutarch, Iamblichus, Synesius, Augustine, Ficino, Bruno, Burma, Henry Moore, Shaftesbury, Blake, Goethe, Coleridge, Emerson, and Yeats were no doubt very unlike each other in many respects, but they were all aware, and in a way that Pythagoras and Plato were not yet aware, of the active role of the individual human spirit. Now, that's a rather intriguing uh, claim that Barfield is uh, making. Um, the next slide, please. Um, but it certainly uh, can be supported. Uh, here's a, a passage from uh, Lord Shaftesbury. Now, Shaftesbury's um, first published work was an edition of Benjamin Whichcote. So in Shaftesbury, we have a figure who was intimately uh, linked to the Cambridge Platonists. He was also tutored, of course, by John Locke. And Locke was a very close companion of the daughter of, uh, of Cudworth, Damaris, uh, Cudworth, later Damaris Masham, and Shaftesbury used to visit Locke when he was living at the house of uh, Sir Francis Masham and Damaris Masham. So Shaftesbury is a man with very deep links to the Cambridge Platonists, and in a way he became the vehicle of their influence in 18th century Europe. Now, um, bear in mind as well that Shaftesbury today is not generally regarded as a major philosopher, but he was perhaps the most influential uh, British philosopher in the 18th century on the continent. He was enormously influential. And this particular concept is one that uh, was uh, deeply influential. Mighty genius, soul animating and inspiring power, author and subject of these thoughts, thy influence is universal and in all things thou art inmost. From thee depend their secret springs of action, thou movest them with an irresistible and wearied force by sacred inviolable laws, framed for the good of each particular being, at best may suit with perfection. So here's the kind of passage that Barfield is referring to. And not only Barfield, but his contemporary or near contemporary, Hans-Georg Gadamer. When Gadamer in his uh, monumental work, Truth and Method, 
insists that the whole concept of genius, as it was received from Shaftesbury by Kant uh, and the Romantics, distorted the whole conception of aesthetics in, uh, in modern philosophy. So whether or not uh, Gadamer is correct about that, whether or not uh, Barfield's account is uh, entirely uh, just, uh, they, they are nevertheless onto something. Here's a very significant concept, this notion of the, uh, the genius. The next slide, please. Now, um, what is the link, though, with Neoplatonism? Well, um, there is uh, a tradition of uh, thought about um, Plato's um, uh, daimonion um, and the, uh, the notion of the, the guardian spirit in, in Platonism, uh, in Treatise 434 on a, a lot of guardian spirit. Um, uh, Plotinus discusses this notion of the, uh, the, the, the guardian spirit um, or the daimon that is the origin of this 18th century conception of uh, the, the genius. But I want to point to another passage here, um, a rather striking um, uh, passage from Plotinus. This is at the beginning of the great treatise 4.8, where he says, I often wake up from my body into my true self, so that being within myself and outside all other things, I enjoy a vision of wonderful beauty. It is then that I believe most firmly that I am part of the nobler realm, living a life of perfect activity. I have become with one at one with the divine, and being securely established in it, I have entered into that higher actuality, setting myself above all the rest of the intelligible world. But when, after being at rest in the divine, I have stated, started my descent from intellection to discursive reasoning, I wonder how on earth it is that even now I am descending, and how on earth it is that my soul has come to be in my body, since it has been revealed to be what it is in itself, despite being in the body. Next uh, slide, please. Now, um, in that very extraordinary uh, passage from Plotinus, uh, we have a doctrine of what uh, might be called uh, Platonic ecstasy. Um, and uh, that's a, a notion that I can't go into at the moment, but uh, it's certainly seen by a uh, contemporary of the Cambridge Platonist, this figure called uh, Samuel Parker, as the key to what he sees as uh, dangerous um, about the, uh, uh, the Cambridge Platonist, and as, as it were, a unifying factor. So this is what Parker writes in his uh, free and impartial censure of the Platonic uh, philosophy. And therefore, it is not unusual with the Platonists to pretend to this kind of enthusiasm. They style themselves the inspired priests of truth, and their philosophy, as it had been poured into them in a div divine and ecstatical fury. And Proclus says it a thousand times of Plato and his commentators that they did. 
as if they had written with a kind of uh, bacchical enthusiasm. And they everywhere talk, so like prophets and oracles, as if they were inspired at least by a bath call. And tis hugely pleasant to read their own exorbitant parades of the exalted divine and ecstatic sublimity of platonic contemplation. They boast of so often of sequestering themselves from all co corporeal commerce and soaring up into the ethereal regions that a man would expect news from the third heaven every day. Uh, so there you've got a rather uh, dry as dust, but certainly pretty learned um, uh, uh, Anglican divine uh, having a go at the, uh, the Cambridge Platonists for their pursuit of this uh, what he thinks of as a particularly pernicious platonic doctrine. So uh, the next slide, please. Now, um, now, actually, I think there's something to this uh, critique that we find in, um, in uh, uh, the free and impartial censure. John Smith, who's one of the most eloquent of the Cambridge Platonists, uh, says, were I indeed to divine divinity, I should rather call it a divine life than a divine science, it being something rather to be understood by a spiritual sensation than by any verbal description. And then he goes on to quote uh, Plotinus, as you can see. So next slide, please. Uh, and Cudworth, um, that is Plotinus aimed at such a kind of rapturous and ecstatic union with Tohen and Tagathon, the first of the three highest gods called the one and the good as he, as by himself is described towards the um, latter end of this last book, Enead 6.9, where he calls it Epaphen and Parusian, Epistemis, Cretona, Epistemis, Cretona, and Tohiato, Kentron, Tohoyon, Panton, Kentro, Synaptain, a kind of tactual union and a certain presence better than knowledge and the joining of our own center, as it were, with the center of the universe. Next slide, please. Um, and he goes on, so we might give a taste of the mystical theology and enthusiasm of these Platonists too, and Porphyry in the life of Plotinus affirmeth that both Plotinus and himself had sometimes experience of a kind of ecstatic union, etc. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and uh, this is another passage from the uh, Smith's uh, select discourses where he gives uh, an account of the true metaphysical and contemplative man who, uh, and again, um, you've got that quote from Plotinus, the Kentron Kentru Synapsis, as Plotinus speaks, knitting his own center, if he have any, unto the center of divine being. Those of you who are familiar with Nicholas of Cusa will be very familiar with this, um, with this imagery. Uh, the next slide. Um, and, uh, but 
Now, what I want to, to, to leave you with here is that this um, notion is most definitely uh, Christian. Um, and again, those who are familiar with the uh, Eckhart School will, will see straight away when Smith talks that though by the Platonists leave such a life and knowledge as this is, peculiarly belonging to the sober, true and sober Christian who lives in him, who is life itself and is enlightened by him who is the truth itself and is made partaker of the divine unction and knoweth all things as St. John speaks. This life is nothing else but God's own breath within him and an infant Christ, if I may use the expression, formed in his soul. Next slide, please. So this um, sense of the, uh, uh, the union with the divine, this sense of uh, enthusiasm in the literal sense of that word and the etymology of it um, is a, a term, a, a notion that is associated with the doctrine of deification and with the uh, with a particular uh, Christology. Now, um, one and again another Cambridge uh, critic of the uh, Cambridge Platonist Anthony Tuckney um, spoke of the Cambridge Platonists as learned and genius men who studied Plato and his scholars more than scriptures. Um, Tuckney uh, uh, blames Wichcott's reading of divines like the Oxford Platonist Thomas Jackson, the great admirer of Nicholas of Cusa, for Benjamin Wichcott's retreat from high Calvinism into what he calls a platonic faith and a moral divinity. And Tuckney uh, criticizes the Platonists as proposing a kind of moral divinity minted only with a tincture of Christ added. But I want to note and finish with this observation that this concept of enthusiasm um, is really a decisive concept. Um, now for Henry Moore, it is uh, usually used to refer to a spiritual sickness, indeed one with a medical dimension, a form of melancholy. But that is to contrast it with a true enthusiasm, which represents a direct apprehension of the purest reason, which is communicable to human beings, namely the intellect that more associates with Christ, the eternal Logos. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Professor Hadley. And would you like to introduce the, the further reading? Yes, uh, now. Church um, Platonism project, perhaps? Exactly. So the, the uh, in, you can see the uh, revision in Cambridge Platonism, Sources and Legacies. That is a work that I edited with David Leach. So it has a number of, uh, as they say, cutting edge uh, research. So that's a very recent work. Um, and just, I think, for an introduction to the Cambridge Platonists, you could look at um, 
Petridis' uh, work, which is, was republished in 2008. Um, and another work that I might mention, which is uh, um, in the uh, uh, Christian Spirituality series, edited by Charles Talifer and Alison Tepley. So Charles Talifer and Alison Tepley. Okay. Well, okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, for this very engaging uh, uh, presentation that brings in a whole nexus of thought and of, and of influences of, of this great school of thought that uh, we're referring to as the Cambridge Platonists that uh, obviously we are more touched than we realize we're touched by them and, and all the threads coming out of them uh, that in ways that we haven't realized perhaps that they are this great pivot of, of sort of, of, Christ, of a Christian school of thought as, as, uh, as the first modern Christian Platonists. Um, we've had several different uh, questions uh, here. Um, here's a question uh, by, from Robert on this idea of, Platon uh, of Platonism and the imagination. Robert yeah. asks, there is a common view of Plato as having uh, a denigratory view of the imagination. Yet the imagination plays a large role in, in the thought of some romantics, especially in Coleridge, up upon which some of your work has focused. You've connected the English romantics to the Cambridge Platonism. Is there a connection between the Coleridgean imagination and the imagination as it is handled in Cambridge Platonism? And can this be traced to a treatment of the imagination in antique Neoplatonism? Uh, lastly, does a high regard for the imagination compromise any of these thinkers, Platonism, uh, any of these plate thinkers, uh, Platonism to sample, uh, or can a laudatory account of imagination be read into Plato's dialogues? Oh, complicated uh, series of questions there. Should I, should I uh, go through them again, or? No, I think I can. I can. Um, uh have a go um so i i think it depends what you um how you define your terms so if you're thinking about um imagination in a fairly narrow sense then the concept of fantasia is uh, not an important concept for uh, Plato, it's a somewhat more important uh, concept for Plotinus um, and some other uh, Neoplatonists like Synesius. It becomes a bit more important, well, significantly more important for Ficino uh, for various reasons. Um, so if you're just looking in terms of what the Germans call Begriffsgeschichte, sort of history of a concept, then uh, it would be, of course, absurd to say that uh, the concept of imagination um, plays a great role for Plato, or indeed for much of the Platonic tradition until the Romantics. However, this is what I would say, that, of course, the Romantics um, were, in many ways, um, in using the term imagination, drawing on a very decisive aspect of both Plato's thought and the way that it was developed subsequently. Um, and I can give us very straightforward reason for this. And this is the 
relationship between what Plato calls muthos and what he calls logos, between myth or story or narrative and reason or intellect. Now, in many of the great dialogues, we come to a point where um, Plato uh, appeals to a philosophical narrative or story. So he gives us a, uh, he gives us a story. Um, now, that is uh, uh, a characteristically, I would say, uh, uh, imaginative uh, exercise, and it is not arbitrary. So the relationship between the myth or the story is one which I think is best understood as a dialectical relationship. That it's not that um, myth is a substitute for logos um, or a diversion, but rather the two are held together in a certain tension. Now, I think that this deployment of myth in crucial moments in the dialogues uh, is a, a, an aspect of Plato and indeed the, the later Platonic tradition that uh, provides a, a perfectly reasonable foundation for what the Romantics did when they say, as Wordsworth did, you know, what is... Um, reason but imagination in her most exalted mood and uh, moving to another topic so moving from the imagination into into nature mm. in previous in previous uh presentations we've had a lot of uh thought about that on bruno the sort of mm. imminence as well as transcendent transcendence of 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 the divine uh and in here we have a, a well we have this interesting relationship between the divine and nature Elizabeth asks the question, with the combination of contemporary science, what is the role of nature for Cambridge Platonisms, Platonists, excuse me, how did nature compare to God? Well, this is where um, they use the language of plastic nature or the spirit of nature. And I think one way of thinking about this is that this is a uh, a, a recurring tendency in the Christian Platonic tradition to um, appeal to something like the anima mundi or the world soul. You get this in the school of Chartres in the 12th century. Uh, of course, you get it in the Renaissance. Um, then you get it uh, in the, you know, again, in the Romantic period. Uh, you also get it, uh, interestingly, in the Russian sociological tradition, where the link between the anima mundi or the world soul and the enigmatic figure of the divine Sophia um, plays a, a large role in uh, figures like Solovyov. So this is a, I mean, this is not, I'd say, a mainstream Christian tradition, but it's, it's, it's a, nevertheless a, 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 a Christian tradition, um, and it's uh, drawing on antique sources, and it's trying to do justice to the notion of divine presence. And of course, this becomes particularly difficult 
in the wake of the new science and particularly the Cartesian conception of nature because the Platonists think that that radically uh, mechanistic conception of nature uh, basically uh, sets up a divorce between God and world. Mm. And they want a conception of nature, which is not pantheistic, of course, they don't want to identify the physical cosmos with the divine, but they also want to hold on to a sense of the natural as having what John Scott Eriogena called the, the theophanic, um, the, 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 the aspect of the, the, the revelation of the divine through the book of nature. So this is, I think, the motive. One finds it particularly powerfully expressed in the poems of, of uh, Traherne, who was a contemporary of the Cambridge Platonists um, and who is full of the most extraordinary uh, accounts of the, uh, the presence of the divine, the presence of the transcendent uh, within the natural realm. And yet at the same time, not being committed to pantheism or denying pantheism actually. Yeah. I mean, again, that's very intriguing. It seems that uh, the attack on Spinoza is radical. And here we get the first um, uh, powerful attack on Spinoza's conception of Deus sive natura. Mm -hmm. So for Henry Moore, that simply will not do. Mm -hmm. and that's, um, so, so the interest in the divine immanence uh, is absolutely not to be confused with an avowal of pantheism. Mm. And it's not just because of the fear of determinism, it's also because of the conception of the relationship between God and nature. Mm. Thank you. And so the, the, the platonic tradition standing and facing the new science and we've had a question also looking at the, one of the other factors, which would be Puritan or uh, Reformed theology of, of England. Yeah. Uh, 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 Torrance asks about, uh, about this factor. Oh, let, me, let me move back to this question. Uh, Professor Headley, would you please comment on the imperative cognitive dis dissonance of the Cambridge Platonists? Uh, Platonists excuse me, my, I'm tongue-tied today. Let me start again. Would you please comment on the apparent cognitive dissonance of the Cambridge Platonists adhering to the grand tradition of the Prisca Theologia and at the same time promoting a concept of enthusiasm which smacks of radical Protestantism? So, uh, uh, well, the, well, the, 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 um, uh, I mean, the, the, the term enthusiasm here is, is, is fascinating. Mm. Um, as I say, Henry Moore you generally uses the term in a very negative way. Um, he was uh, quite savage in his critic criticisms of the Quakers, uh, the Familists, so of these you know, radical Protestant groups that were uh, appealing to direct uh, communication with the divine in order to attack church authority or uh, the tradition of the Christian church. Um, so in that sense, uh, Henry Moore looks like a uh, traditionalist uh, Christian 
defined uh, defending uh, ecclesial authority. Uh, however, um, there's a uh, complication here. I think the reason why Moore is so sensitive to the uh, criticism of the kind that uh, I read in the uh, free and impartial censure by Samuel Parker is because it, it hits a nerve. I mean, Moore knows that the uh, conception of the indwelling divine um, is a core element in this uh, Christian Platonic tradition. Uh, one notices the uh, you know, Smith's use of that Eckhardian terminology of the birth of Christ in, in the soul, um, which of course is a doctrine of, um, of the, uh, the enthusiasmos. It's, it's the, the, uh, um, the, 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 the divine within. Um, that notion of the, the presence of the divine, which of course um, uh, has, is in a way the platonic answer to the question of the Delphic Oracle, know thyself. Know thyself? Well, what does that mean? It means to know the divine within. Of course, that's Christianized in the sense, know the divine the, as the, the indwelling Christ. Uh, that's the reason, I think, why Henry Moore has to attack the Quakers. He has to attack those radical Protestant sects uh, that um, use this theme of deification in a way that he thinks is dangerous. So the, the, the project is to harness a particular Christian tradition of uh, spirituality with deep roots in the Platonic uh, metaphysical tradition, but in a way which of course, remember the context of the, seven, of the 17th century. Uh, this is a dreadful civil war, uh, a brutal uh, uh, war, uh, which um, also uh, led to the execution of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the execution of the king, um, the, uh, the turbulence that the... Um, with the restoration of the monarchy, all the uncertainties, the uh, more was deeply sensitive to these questions of, uh, of, of civil order uh, uh, and the possible turbulence that enthusiasm misunderstood could lead to. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. And, and there's a couple questions from our attendees on, on other, other contemporaries who might be a little bit further afield no. Uh, from the Cambridge Platonists, but have some relationships with them. First about John Wilkins. Elizabeth asks, how closely aligned was John Wilkins with the Cambridge Platonism, or Platonists, excuse me, and how does he incorporate theology in his works, for example, mathematical magic? Well, I'm, I'm a, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question, and I'm afraid I don't know how to answer it. Hmm. Um, I mean, the, the relationship with the Royal Society is, is I think, a, a, a great fascinating question. Um, and as you see, uh, with, uh, with um, Glanville, uh, we have, uh, you know, an enthusiastic uh, defense of the Cambridge Platonists. Um, Henry Moore was a, himself a, a fellow of the Royal Society. And in fact, we had an excursion once as a, 
as part of our team to go and visit a newly discovered portrait of uh, Henry Moore in the Royal Society, which was, which was rather, rather wonderful. Hmm. Um, well, let me move to the other uh, question on, on Thomas Taylor. Uh, right, okay. Uh, Brian asks, aside from his professed paganism, a source of much controversy in his day, are there any important respects in which you would distinguish Thomas Taylor's approach to Neoplatonism from that of the Cambridge men? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Taylor, of course, had a deeply conflicted relationship to the Cambridge Platonists. Hmm. Um, so- Can you also remind us what, what Thomas Taylor is famous for? Well, Thomas Taylor is, um, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, uh, sure of his, his, his uh, precise dates, but he's sort of roughly 1760 um, to 1830 or so. Uh, he was um, uh, an extraordinary enthusiast for the Platonic tradition but rather in the, well, very much in the tradition of the Emperor Julian. Mm -hmm. So uh, remember, this is one of the problems in the dis any discussion about Christian Platonism is that in late antiquity, uh, Neoplatonism, so pagan Platonism was the dominant school in antiquity uh, and it was explicitly anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's why a number of uh, scholars, whether it's Heinrich Dürer or Mark Edwards in, uh, in, in Christchurch in Oxford, uh, think to talk about Christian Platonism is really a nonsense when you're looking at the hard facts in late antiquity. And that has to do with, of course, the context of late antiquity with the institution of Christianity as the official religion of the empire, and the resentment of pagan intellectuals towards uh, this imposition of, uh, of, of Christianity. Um, and uh, from Porphyry through to Proclus, we have this uh, great tradition of polemic against Christianity. And Taylor inherits that. I mean, inherit, and Taylor sees himself as uh, very much a man of the enlightenment at one level in that he's a criticizing priestcraft He's criticizing the privileges of the Christian church, but very much anti-enlightenment in the sense that he's very definitely anti-empiricism. He's uh, for an out and out platonic philosophy. So he regards the Cambridge Platonists, uh, he regards um, what we find in, in Coleridge uh, as, a, um, as a hopeless compromise. I mean, he just does not think that uh, Christian Platonism makes sense. Mm. I mean, the interesting uh, development in, in North America is with, uh, I suppose, a whole tradition from Emerson to William James, um, just to mention a couple of figures, who were you know, deeply influenced by uh, both Taylor and uh, Coleridge. Um, and so you get uh, both of these influences coming into uh, in, into the into North America. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. And then moving into this this great uh, reception of 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 these this body of a, a group of thinkers, um, 
there, there is a great presentation on on English Romanticism, and as you're now referring to American uh, American readers, including John Muir and others, we have a question on some of the 18th century uh, receptions mm -hmm. and critics. Uh, Sean asks, I'm fascinated by the family resemblance, you know, between Cudworth and Coleridge on the natural sublime. Could you say more about the German romantics and their reception of Cambridge Platonism, especially in re with reference to enthusiasmus or unio mystica? Um, well, that's, that's, a, that's a very complicated uh, story. Um, and um, largely because it's, it's uh, mediated. Hmm. So it's very difficult to um, trace direct influence. And this is partly because you have to remember that in the 18th century, everybody read French, um, Latin and Greek, but not English, right? So English is a, is a um, fairly unusual language to, to uh, read if you're a, uh, a German uh, man of letters um, in, the, in the 18th century. So um, you know, Schopenhauer will translate his, his English. He won't translate his, uh, his Latin or Greek. So, so English is, 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 is not a, a widely known uh, language in, in 18th century Germany, although some of them do uh, uh, know it. Um, and the main influence of Cudworth was through the Latin translation of 1733 by Lawrence von Morsheim, perhaps the Erasmus of the 18th century, who translated the entire true intellectual system of the universe into Latin. And that had a very significant role in the German university systems. So it became, as it were, a textbook for young theologians and philosophers. So it was required reading at Tübingen, for example, which is where Schelling, Hegel, and Hölderlin. So they all would have read Cudworth via Morsheim. Uh, the other factor is uh, Shaftesbury, of course, where many elements of the Cambridge Platonists come through um, uh, Shaftesbury. And finally, this is another um, strand, which I think is of uh, great significance, but very difficult to um, analyze in, uh, tidy, in a tidy manner. Um, and this is really via Henry Moore rather than uh, Cudworth or Shaftesbury. And it has to do with uh, what we might call Christian Kabbalism. Now, one uh, a very important feature of 18th century intellectual life uh, was the reception of uh, a purportedly Kabbalistic tradition uh, the development of a so-called Christian Kabbalah. Um, the major figure here is Christian Knorr von Rosenhort, who was a friend of uh, uh, Van Helmont, Franciscus Mercurius Van Helmont, who, um, and, and of Henry Moore. And in one of the great works of the 18th century, the Kabbalah Denudata, so the Kabbalah uh, unveiled, 
uh, Rosenroth um, included uh, Moore, uh, who was a critic of what he, of a certain kind of Christian Kabbalah, but nevertheless Moore became um, part of that whole strand of 18th century German thought uh, drawing on a certain kind of Kabbalistic tradition. Now, within this Christian Kabbalistic tradition, there was a very strong Neoplatonic uh, element. And this is uh, very influential in the, um, what one might call the mystical sources of German idealism. So to give you an example, when uh, Friedrich Heinrich Jacobi uh, in the so-called Pantheismusstreit, or the, the controversy about pantheism linked to the revival of Spinoza, uh, uh, designates uh, this pantheism as uh, Hen Kai Pan, then this is the, uh, the term, terminology taken from the Morsheim translation of Kudwitz to intellectual system of the universe. So there, there is a, um, there's also references in that work by Jacobi to Henry Moore. Uh, he's actually referred to as Heinrich uh, Moore, but it's, 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 it's of course uh, Henry. And uh, it's through this mediation of uh, the discussion about patristics uh, in relating to Lawrence von Morsheim and his translation of Cutler's to Intellectual System of the Universe. It's the whole legacy of what one might call Christian mysticism, Christian Kabbalah, also tied in some respects to the reception of Jakob Burma. Mm -hmm. And finally, Shaftesbury and the whole notion of die schöne Seele, kind of German asceticism. So that, I would say, would be the three main strands through which the Cambridge Platonists exerted an influence, albeit often indirectly, but nevertheless, I'd say a pretty potent influence. And it's striking that just at that time, there's also that suspicion of this, uh, in some quarters, intellectual quarters of that kind of mystical thinking. Uh, Denis asked a question about Brucker and his and his criticism, and then we'll ask this question and maybe one final and, and finish up here. Uh, Denis asks, some early modern crit critics of Platonism, for example, Johann Jakob Brucker of the 18th mm -hmm. century, defined the religious dimensions of late ancient Platonism as the work of charlatans. In other words, many philosophers try to separate the philosophical concepts and arguments of these ancient philosophers from their religious or mystical experiences. Yeah. How would you characterize the Cambridge Platonism on the religion of, or mysticism of the Neoplatonism? Slide 21, where you <laughs> touch on this topic with your anecdote on Cudworth on Porphyry's testimony of Plotinus's henosis or union with the divine prompts this question. Okay, right, well, um... I, 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 well, let me put my cards on the table and that uh, I uh, share entirely the view of uh, Finlay about wow. this. So um, I think that the, uh, broadly speaking, the Neoplatonic um, view of the uh, of, of Platonism is a, um, well, a, uh, an attractive interpretation. Um, uh, uh, not without its problems, um, but also internally 
um, pretty compelling. So I uh, call that mysticism, call that um, enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, I'm happy to accept the challenge um, mm. as, as were uh, Cudworth and, and more. No, I mean, I think this is, uh, Denis is, is raising a very important issue here that um, one of the problems in dealing with figures like Cudworth and Moore is the, the radical shift in, as it were, our intellectual sensorium. So much of what is just taken for granted by many of these figures seems extremely question begging uh, for us today. So one has to, as it were, in order to appreciate these figures, um, reconstruct some of those some of those assumptions. Um, but once you do, many of them are, um, well, if I may say, more defensible than they might at first sight seem. Okay. That's not um, probably an, an answer to, to Denis's uh, uh, question, but um, I think no. that might have to do. No, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. Uh, as a final question, this is a, a more stand back uh, type of question that 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 I I'd be curious to, to hear your your comments on, as you've traced this sort of hidden action or agency of the of the Cambridge Platonism Platonist for transmitting a lot of these medieval and Renaissance thoughts on nature and the divine into into modernity, uh, and it's popping up with with John Muir, probably with with Emerson or or Thoreau. I think you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Uh, and then so there, there's all sorts of environmental thinkers mm -hmm. uh, or ecological thinkers who are reading those kinds of sources. If we want to go back to the Platonists for, or the Cambridge Platonists for insights into our relationship to nature and, and uh, the, the divine in nature, the imminence of the, of the divine in nature, uh, what insights do you think are most valuable that they might offer us today? It's a tough question, a very broad one, but yeah. Well, I think it's it's a an axiological perspective, mm. by which I mean it's um, the sense that the facts of the world are also bearers of meaning. Mm. So that I, it's their their critique of of a sort of certain kind of Cartesian dualism, whereby the world is, um, the physical world, the physical cosmos, is divested of um, meaning and, and purpose. Um, now, what they um, wish to argue for is a conception of nature that is philosophically uh, defensible, but which avoids um, untenable forms of uh, mechanism and reductionism. And I would say their key intuition here is the beauty of the world. Now they all see um, the beauty of the world as a powerful argument for God's existence. And 
the danger of Hobbes, but not just the radical atheist Hobbes, but the pantheist Spinoza and the theist uh, Descartes is that they divest the world of the beauty that the splendor day, which mm. you know, that beauty which points to God mm. um, in a rather immediate way, um, not as a uh, the basis for an intellectual inference mm. um, in the sense of the, the classic cosmological argument, but a uh, as it were a, a, an intuition of the divine presence, um, but one that they think can be reinforced by uh, a number of philosophical arguments and indeed a number of uh, uh, scientific arguments that we would no longer find very compelling. Um, and in fact, if you go through Henry Moore's works, you will find a number of somewhat um, uh, implausible uh, arguments that he provides for his notion of the spirit of nature. And in fact, he was criticized by Boyle and by others at the time for that. But I think that that basic principle, that thought that the um, the beauty of the cosmos is an argument for God's existence is still a, a, an idea of profound relevance and, and particularly obviously for the ecological movement. And I love the particular language of Cudworth on the silent language of nature, the admiration, the kind of ecstasy, the pleasing horror, the fine, yep. it's beautiful. Professor Headley, thank you so much for this very enlightening uh, and accessible uh, 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 presentation on this on this 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 great topic. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Indeed, uh, on behalf of the Lumen Christie Institute and all of our um, viewers, thank you, Professor Headley. And I would invite everyone to tune in again next week for the continuation of this series next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Um, and you can also join us this Thursday at the same time at noon. Um, central for our event, Pondering Hiroshima on the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb. Um, otherwise, I'd invite you also to support us by um, sharing word about these events um, and help to share more about Reason and Beauty in the Renaissance um, with your peers, with your students, um, and uh, with other scholars. Once more, thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Thank you, Professor Headley, once more. Thank you.